get there, I get the privilege. And it, it truly is a privilege if you get to speak up here to, you know, get to call out certain people. And one of the most important people in my life is my wife. And it's her second birthday today, so she gets to come up here. Nathan, bring her up. She, she, if, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be up here right now. Guaranteed, I guarantee you that. Ask any of the men here, they will tell you that. Ask my sons, they will tell you that. Without my beautiful wife, I would not be up here at all. <laughs> so... This is her second birth. Every year, my wife gets two birthdays, okay? Uh, she was born on the 15th, but the midwife didn't register it until the 18th. So all of her official documents say the 18th. So we get to sing for, even though if you were here on Sunday and still sang with her, you still get to do it again, okay? So please join with me in honoring my uh, beautiful wife, Emily, Okay. Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday dear Emily, happy birthday to you. I love you. Thank you, that means I get old twice. <laughs> no, it's not. you just get younger. <laughs> I, I love telling people my wife's age because she looks a lot younger than she actually is. Uh, but, you know, to say my, my wife doesn't like me telling people her age, though. So <clears throat> I, I honor my wife in that. Yeah, We're in Isaiah chapter 33. We're right in the middle of the book of Isaiah, being 66 uh, book or chapters long. And again, just like what we mentioned last week, this is a microcosm of the Bible. Uh, the Bible being 66 books long, uh, 39 in the Old Testament, just like the book of Isaiah is divided into two books or two sections, 39 chapters in the first uh, book and the last 27 chapters in from 40 to uh, 66. And so again, we get to see a, a, a picture of what it is like for the nation of Israel as they're going through the last of the woes. And you remember the section that we're in, there's six different woes, just like the prophets, just like the minor prophets and the major prophets. This is the section that we're in now in the book of Isaiah, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 33, it says, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and yet you deal treacherously, though you have not dealt treacherously with you. Uh, when you cease plundering, you will be plundered. And when you make an end of dealing treacherously, uh, they will deal treacherously with you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. As the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nations shall be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar at the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with right or justice and righteousness, wisdom and knowledge 
shall be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Surely their valiant one shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. And so, Father, tonight as we approach these uh, chapters in the middle of Isaiah, help us to truly be overwhelmed. Not, not just with the language. Uh, not just with the... Um, the fact that these woes are being coming to fruition after many, many, many warnings. But to see how you work in spite of the acts of men, your sovereign will. How, how your plans always come to pass in perfect timing. And despite our efforts... You are always on time. Despite our um, fighting against you, you are always there perfectly in your willful timing. And so, Lord, tonight, remind us, as many of us have come from long days, maybe having to deal with, with things that uh, have overwhelmed us in our lives, maybe at work or in our families, uh, the, the things that we're wrestling with in our, in our conscience, the things that are going on the around the world that may be worrying us. And Lord, help us to lift those things to you. Help us to understand that uh, right now for this next set of time that, that you are the priority. That, that our thoughts need to be upon you, need to be upon you, need to be upon you. And Lord, refresh us now. Lord, I thank you so much for the time of worship that we had. I thank you for the many people that work behind the scenes, for those teachers that are teaching our kids right now, that, that have taken time out of their schedule, and, and many of them without breaks, that teach both Wednesday nights and Sundays without any recognition whatsoever. And they serve our kids wholeheartedly. I ask you bless them. I thank you so much for uh, the people in the back, for our sound team, Joe and Jeff and John, and, and just allowing them to have many, many uh, talented gifts uh, so that we can not only broadcast here in this room and outside, but also to those that are online listening. I ask you bless them and use them for your glory. And Lord, tonight I ask your Holy Spirit, and that I, I really uh, thank you so much that your Holy Spirit is free to move tonight, uh, that, that we would never in any way hinder your Holy Spirit, that we'd be sensitive to the, the conviction and the pricking uh, of your Spirit tonight as you speak to us through your word. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. There's two words that are being repeated over and over and over again in these, in these sentences, in these verses. It's the word plunder, 
and it's the word treacherous. Now, both words we don't like, right? You, you know, you don't want to be plundered uh, by anyone. Of course, we don't really use these words nowadays. But to have someone come against you in every single way, treacherously try to take something from you. Where someone comes and, and maybe it's your property or maybe it's your money or maybe it's your time and they suck it dry. And we always blame other people, but many times in our own lives, we too can be on the end of being the plundered or the plunderer or, or being dealt treacherously against or being the one that's treacherous. All of us have been in, in both sides. Uh, That's the manipulation of the human heart. And in these passages, we see what happens to those who plunder and those who are treacherous. In fact, in the very first word, it says, woe. Woe. The last of the woes, the greatest of the six woes, starting all the way back in chapter 30, where we see the woes being repeated over and over and over again. Woe to those who plunder. Woe to those who deal treacherously. Now, of course, in these verses, just like what we've been talking about in the previous verses, we see this uh, dealing with the nation of Assyria. And the Assyrian Empire at this time is literally on the doorsteps of Jerusalem. They have conquered the known world at this time. And all that's left is the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. They've conquered Egypt. They've conquered Syria in the north. They've conquered Jordan and Edom and all the surrounding nations. And all that's left is this little spot of land, Jerusalem itself. We're going to see this once we get to chapter 36. And of course, Isaiah, in his love for the Lord, verse 2 says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. What should we do when we feel like everybody is against us? What, what should we do when we feel like people are dealing treacherously with us or ourselves being plundered, who should we turn to? It says it right there, the Lord. He, he is the one that gives us grace. He is the one that is our strength. He is the one that is our salvation in the day or the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee when you lift yourself up, and the nations will be scattered, and your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar at the running to and fro of locusts. He shall run upon them. I don't know if any of you guys have gardens or trees, but what happens when the caterpillars start eating your tomato plants? Those, those green bugs with that tail that sticks out, right? And they look like aliens. I remember growing up in Fontana, we had these, you know, beautiful tomato plants. The greatest joy that we had was taking those 
tomato bugs or those tomato worms and throwing them to the chickens and watching the chickens literally tear these things. I mean, you know, they loved these big, huge, fat tomato worms, right? And this is exactly the picture that we see here. Those caterpillars are destroying the nation of Israel. Those caterpillars and those locusts are eating away at the productivity. They're plundering the nation of Judah, Jerusalem itself. And what is God saying? I'm going to pluck them off and I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to bring waste to them. Verse 5, the Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. And the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord, is his treasure. Have you ever read the book of Proverbs? We had the privilege of going through Proverbs about last year. Uh, going through the book of Proverbs right at the beginning uh, of the year and seeing what it was like to be a person of wisdom. And what that meant, not, not just in our spiritual life, but in our daily life as well. N not just in a, a church setting or a religious setting, but also in everyday practical choices. Finances and morality and family and work. All these things that we have to make choices for every single day. Does the word of God give you practical advice? Yes, it does. The book of Proverbs, the Bible itself, it is a treasure to us. Uh, verse 7, surely their valiant one shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lay, lie waste and the traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards uh, no men. At this time, we're going to see in just a couple of chapters, the narrative play out of the Assyrian Empire and what they're going to do in order to try and treacherously plunder of the city of Jerusalem. And, and God, in his prophetic word leading up to this event, is telling the Israelites at this time, this is what's going to happen. The nations are going to surround you, but I will deliver you. I will save you from this horrendous large nation. Verse 9, the earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness and Bashan and Carmel uh, shake off their fruits. It has already happened to the surrounding nations. Sharon is in the west. Bashan and Carmel are going to be in the east. These nations that have already fallen, the nations of Edom represented here by Carmel and Bashan and also Lebanon in the north and Syria in the north. These other nations have shriveled up and died because of the presence of the Assyrian Empire. And yet Judah, Jerusalem itself, is going to stand strong. How? Verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. 
You shall conceive chaff. You shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall destroy you. And the people shall be like burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. Hear you who are afar off what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. Who is going to stand up for his people? God himself will be exalted. And it's in contrast to every single one of the woes. Because you remember going all the way back uh, three, four chapters earlier, the woe was against the pride of the religious people. It was against the pride of the political leaders. It was against the pride of the military might. It was against the pride of the nations. And who is going to show his exaltation to those around him? It's going to be God himself. God is going to stand up and protect his people. Verse 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. Who gestures with his hands, refusing bribes. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. What, what is it like to be a person who stands strong in the Lord? And of course, the contrast is those that are fearful, those that are doubting, those that do not put their trust in the Lord. Those that are, as it says here, hypocrites. Because there were there hypocrites in Jerusalem at this time? Oh yeah, they were part of the religious elite. They were the priests. They were the false prophets. They were those that had that um, tickling word for the people. Th that word that the people wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. Rather than saying the word of God goes forth, they say my word goes forth. On Monday nights, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel. And we've been having the privilege to see that uh, there's this definition or this word that is used throughout the book of Ezekiel, a watchman. And a watchman has two jobs. The first one, of course, is the title of the word watchman. It's the very first word in watchman. It's the word watch, right? Kind of obvious. And the second term that's uh, definitive of the word watchman is warn. You see, when a watchman sees danger coming, what is their job? To warn. The watchman, they watch and they warn. But what happens when a watchman's fearful? Well, what happens when a watchman doesn't do their job? What, what happens when a watchman is treacherous or deceitful? They see the enemy coming, or they may fall asleep on the job, or they may not warn, or they may deceive 
and be the one that lets the enemy in. Treachery. There's this idea as we see here that God is going to bring those people to the ground. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king in his beauty. Thank God. They will see the land that is very far off. Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see the fierce people, a people of obscure speech beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feast. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down, nor or not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. You see, when you look out at the vast armies that are surrounding the city, what can happen to your fear level? When you look at the enemy, what can happen to your perception of fear? We can say, oh, there's 185,000 out there. That's a lot of people. I'm scared. But what is Isaiah telling the people through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? No, look at the strength of the Lord, not only in the towers and the walls, but what he's done to bless this city over and over and over again, and how he has always protected the city of Jerusalem. Look at the strength of your God, because he is stronger than all the surrounding enemies. You remember the story of Elisha. Remember the king of Israel had called his armies and said, go and take Elisha prisoner. And they come to the house of Elisha and his servant goes out and he sees this army that's there to, you know, take them away. And what does Elisha say to his servant? Lord, open up his eyes and what surrounded the house of Elisha. The hosts of the armies of God protecting his servants. By the way, we're going to find out in chapter 37 and 38, there's only going to be one angel. It only takes one. And it's a beautiful picture. Verse 21, but there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor no majestic ships pass by. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. What is the promise? Every one of those is a surety. Every one of those is a sure uh, word, is, will, always there. Who is our God? He's the one that will protect us and save us. Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, 
Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You may be asking, well, this was written 2,700 years ago. That, that, that was God back then. That, that was God for the nation of Judah. That was God for the people of Jerusalem. That, th those people over there a long time ago. Is our God still the same? Is the promises still the same for today? Yes, it is. Verse 23, your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. By the way, every single one of these prophecies, every single one of these predictions are going to come true in just a couple of chapters. In just a couple of chapters, every single one of these prophecies are going to come to pass. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. You see, we have a greater danger than other people or the armies of other nations or what's happening in Afghanistan or what's happening around the world or what's happening in our you know, financial system or what's happening in the political spectrum. You see, there's even, even greater evil. It's the sin within our own hearts. It's iniquity. It's me choosing to purposely put something before God. When I allow sin to overcome the barriers, the walls, the protections in my life, and I open the doors, and I say, come on in, sin. It's the most destructive force to a person's life. And unfortunately, it's running rampant in our society, not just outside the church, but inside the church as well. The understanding is that iniquity comes into a person's life when I should be a watchman for my life, for my family, for our church. <clears throat> Instead of warning, we welcome. Instead of stopping it, we say, come on in. Sin causes problems in Christians' lives greater than any outside influence. And we should be on our knees asking God, please forgive us. Please forgive us. Help us to be the ones who stand up for what is right. And does God readily forgive? Does God readily reach out? Thank God he does. In fact, in verse 34, or chapter 34, it says, Come near, you nations, to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear, and all that is in it, the world, and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains 
mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as fruit falling uh, uh, from a fig tree. You see, at this time, the nation of Assyria has already destroyed the nation or the kingdom of Israel in the north, the ten northern tribes. The nation of Israel in the north, whose capital was Samaria, was taken away and literally scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire, led away by fish hooks in their mouth, by meat hooks in their cheeks, led away into bondage and captivity. And the Assyrian Empire is now have their sights set on the city of Jerusalem. And what can happen when a, when a person looks at the circumstances and sees, well, everybody else has fallen, and we're next. The odds are against us. It, it's stacked against us. And what can we say? I, I'm only one person. I can't stand against the tide of evil. But who stands up for us? The Lord God Almighty, the one who is in charge of the hosts of heaven, the one who is in charge of all the angelic armies of heaven itself, who with one word can call down with authority the power of heaven itself. In fact, in verse 5, it says, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. You guys know who the Edomites were, right? They were descendants of Esau. Remember, Esau was the twin brother of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. So, so the Edomites and the Israelites, they're cousins. That their descendants were related through twin brothers. And you remember what happened with Jacob and Esau. What did Jacob do when Esau came home hungry one day? He dealt treacherously with him. He plundered the birthright. Ooh. And did Esau like that? No, he did not. He hated him, right? But, but eventually after 20, 30, 40 years when Jacob comes back with all of his kids, what does Esau do? You know, he goes out and he greets him, right? But do you understand every time you see the word Edom in the scriptures, the, the Edomites, the ones, the descendants from Esau, uh, these were the ones that were related to Israel itself. By the way, if you read the story of Joseph, the ones that sold Joseph into slavery, they were the Edomites. You see throughout the scriptures, the Edomites were these people that were hardy. They were strong. They believed in themselves. They lived in the rocks. They lived in places like modern-day Petra. They lived in the caves. And they had their strength in themselves. And what is God going to do to them? He's going to bring them down. 
Verse 6, the sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat to the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. You see in the sacrificial system, and if you read this, you can read this in the book of Leviticus and the book of Exodus as well. Uh, literally what they would do with the ox or the sheep or the ram, uh, they would take certain parts from the animal as the sacrifice. Normally the whole thing wasn't burnt or sacrificed, except for in the burnt offering, there was normally a portion Normally, it was the hind leg and the thigh that were waved before the Lord. But in one of the sacrifices, the fat of the kidney, that, that bulb of fat above the kidney was taken and used as part of the sacrifice. And, and if you've ever, you know, had to deal with fat, what does it do uh, to your skin? There, there's this... Um, you know, slickness to it, right? This is what it, it's like. The blood and the fat are just streaming forth. The blood and the fat is literally saturating the land. Why? Verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its stream shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever from generation to generation. It shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever. And ever, and of course, this is going to be ultimately fulfilled if you look ahead to the book of Revelation, uh, chapter uh, 19. Verse 11, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it, and the owl and the raven shall dwell in it, and he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stone of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the land, but none shall be there and all its princes shall be nothing. What's going to happen to the land? It's going to be desolate. Wild animals are going to inhabit it. There will be no more people for a certain amount of time. What's going to happen to the buildings? Verse 13, and the thorn shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard of ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there and find for himself or herself a place of rest and there the arrow snake shall make her nest and lay eggs and hatch and gather them under her shadow there also shall the hawks be gathered every one with her mate what is going to happen to the land not only to the you know the promised land on the eastern side there but also to Edom and Jordan and the people on the other side of the Jordan River what's going to happen to the land going to be inhabited by wild animals. 
All those nice palaces, all those nice homes, what's going to happen to them? Brambles and weeds, and then you've seen it whenever a house is deserted or whenever a place is, is you know, uh, not lived in, what automatically happens? Nature takes over. Verses 16 and 17. I love this part. Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it and his spirit has gathered them. Who is in control of all nature? And you remember the story of Noah's Ark. Who was the one that brought every single one of those pairs of animals into the ark itself? Did Noah have to go throughout the world and, and gather the elephants and the giraffes and the, all the various animals throughout the nation? No. What happened? God brought every single one of them to the ark, right? And it's the same thing that's going to be happening here. It's going to be God who brings about this habitation of nature itself. Verse 17, he has cast the lot for them and his hand has divided it among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation. They shall dwell in it. And of course, this is in quotations, the prophecies of God are going to come to pass. Chapter 35, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice. Even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our uh, God. At this time, of course, Lebanon used to have these huge, beautiful cedar trees. In fact, during the time of King Solomon, it was Solomon who had made a treaty with the king of Lebanon to bring these massive trees for him, not only to build for his own house, but for the house of God, the temple itself, the tabernacle of God. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. I don't know why you came tonight. I have no idea. Maybe maybe you just had a free night, or maybe there was nothing on TV, or maybe someone invited you. I don't know. But I do know that there's a word from this text tonight for you. And this verse is amazing in its clarity. This verse in the midst of this prophecy that is happening Will God stand up for his people and will he save them? Yes, he does. Verse five. And the eyes of the blind shall be open. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And the lame shall leap like a deer. 
and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of jackals where each lay. There shall be grass with reeds and rushes. What is God going to do to those that are down and out? Those that are the outcasts of society, those that have no way of participating, whether in a religious ceremony or, or in just the life in general in a society. Those that have to beg for their food. The blind, the deaf, the lame. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19 these verses are repeated as a prophecy of, a, of predicting who the Messiah is going to be. You see, in Luke chapter 14, verse 18, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty the captives, to recover sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Do you know who said that? Jesus Christ, when he went to Nazareth, his hometown, and opened up the book of Isaiah, where we are reading and reading these same texts, this text and also chapter 42 as well, reading these texts and in every single way, fulfilling prophecy by reading the words from Isaiah written some 700 years before he actually read it. Jesus himself standing up to his countrymen who are just about ready to stone him to death because he is saying that I am the Messiah, this little boy that grew up in their own town. And they take him to the cliff and they're about ready to stone him. And what does he do? Walks right through that crowd. It's not my time yet. It is God that brings about the perfect way of salvation. I have the privilege of knowing Nelson. And even though he is um, physically blind, in many ways, he's the fulfillment of these verses because he sees spiritual things a lot more clearly than most people do. And thank God that he opens, and more importantly, that he opens spiritually blind people, spiritually deaf people, spiritually lame people, and he heals them. In fact, these are the the predictions in verses 8 and 9, the prophetic word in verses 8 and 9 fulfilled, a highway shall be there and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Not only is it for the blind, not only is it for the deaf, not only is it for the lame, not only is it for those that, that have problems talking, but guess who else is coming in? The fools as well. 
How many fools here have been saved? Thank God. God saves us from our foolishness. He saves us from our own destruction. Thank God. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up to it or on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Thank God that he redeems us. Thank God that he came to this earth to die for us, to redeem us and to ransom us by his blood. In fact, that's exactly what it says in verse 10. And the ransom the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I always tell people that want to go to uh, Israel, to Jerusalem, and they always ask, you know, is it safe to go there? Is it, you know, uh, well, what about the expenses? What about all the, you know, problems that are going on in the Middle East and everything like that? And, and many people, you know, may never get to go to Israel in their lifetime. But guess what? You'll get to go there one day. This is guaranteed. You, you will fulfill prophecy when you walk through the streets of Jerusalem. When you go through the beautiful gates. When you get to see not some dome of the rock on you know, a, a place in the heights of Jerusalem itself. But you will see the temple itself rebuilt. And we will get the joy of walking through those gates. In fact, in Psalms 126, it says this. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. And our mouth was filled with laughter. And our tongue was singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. You see, these prophecies are not just for people that are descended from Jacob or from Israel or from Reuben or from Gad or Dan or Joseph or Ephraim or Manasseh or Judah or Benjamin. It's not for those, just for those that are from the line of Israel, it's for those that are from God. We too have the privilege of saying the same exact thing. It's not just for them, it's for those that are redeemed of the Lord. And if you're redeemed of the Lord, if you know him personally, guess what? You too can claim these same things. In fact, at the end of Psalm 126, and by this way, by the way, this is a, a song of ascents, which means that the, the people that were going up to Jerusalem would be singing these songs as they were walking up the road to uh, Jerusalem itself. Verse 6, it says, as it concludes this psalm, he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. 
bringing his sheaves with him. What are those sheaves? It's the produce. It's the fruit of your labor. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Those of you that serve behind the scenes, those, those of you serve that may, may not even serve at this church, but may, may serve, you know, your family or your community or those around you, anything you do in the name of the Lord himself, you will have produce, fruitfulness to bring to God himself, gold, jewels, silver, things that are precious that will not be devoured by fire. Those things that you do in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank God that we have participation in his praises as well. Now we start verse or chapter 36 here, and, and you see in your, your text or maybe on the screen there uh, that, that the format changes. You see, in, in all the previous 35 chapters, it was this narrow text with, you know, a font that looked a little bit different. It looked like a Psalms or poems or whatever it was. Those are all prophecies. And now we come to the narrative section in Isaiah, the historical section. You see, something is about to happen. The fulfillment of prophecy is going to be happening right now during the time of Hezekiah and Isaiah. It says in chapter 36, Now it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rebshaki with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And Eliakim and the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shibna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came out to him. And of course, you can see this historical text repeated in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32. And, and, and three times this same exact event is repeated in the scriptures. It's very important what is about ready to happen. You see, in 2 Kings chapter 18, this event is described in such a way that it's meant as a personal battle in a spiritual way between the forces of, of God and the forces of evil itself. Assyria is coming up and about ready to destroy the nation of Jerusalem surrounding it. And then, of course, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32, uh, a much more detailed version of this same story is told as well. In Isaiah chapter 36, verse 4, we get the details of what is about ready to happen. Then the Rabsheki said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? I say, you speak of having plans and power of war, but they are mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? Look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed Egypt on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all 
who trust in him. Have you ever been on a Sunday service where Pastor Mike Ostheimer is, is teaching, or, or maybe you hear one of our other pastors and, and you get a word from the Lord from them, or maybe on Wednesday night or Monday night or Wednesday morning or Friday nights, whenever it is, and, and then it seems like that next week something happens where you have to actually apply the Word of God, where, where, where God in His, you know, uh, amazing will and his sovereign sovereignty in his planning brings about something where you have to apply what you just learned this is exactly what's happening in the nation of judah the city of jerusalem at this time they are going to find out where the rubber hits the road where prophecy now becomes practical where the word of god now becomes fulfilled in their very midst who are we going to put our trust in? Am I going to look at the army that's surrounding the nation, my walls, my towers? Or am I going to look to the Lord? You see, it's easy to be theoretical. It's easy to be theological. You have all your arguments laid out. But then what happens when you have to actually put it into practice? Where you actually have to take the theology, the teaching, and you have to apply it to real life. You have to move it from your head, and you have to put it into your heart, and your feet have to carry it out. You see, when these things come to pass, not only will God be found out true and trustworthy, we're also going to see that he fulfills his prophecy at the same time. See this title, Rebshaki, that, that, that's here. It's a, an Assyrian term for commander. It's like a title. It's not a proper name. It, it's a title of a person who is put in charge of this large army. In fact, there's over 185,000 people in this army. And they've been rampaging throughout the territory of Judah, the nation of Judah. They've already conquered Israel and Jordan, Syria, Edom, all the surrounding areas. They've even gone so far south as to capture Egypt itself. And now this little area of land is left. The city of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah. Verse 7, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord God, and of course, Reb Chaki is talking at this time. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to put riders on them. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, and of course, again, this is Reb Shaki talking treacherously with plunder in his heart. Go up against this land and destroy it. What is he doing? He's dripping sarcasm. He's dripping treachery and lies. What is he saying? Your king has destroyed all your gods. And of course, 
you know, partly true. Hezekiah, at the beginning of his reign, literally destroyed all the other gods in Judah, all the other gods in Jerusalem. He had torn down the high places. He had torn down the idols and put the people's hearts on God alone. The treachery is literally dripping from Rebshakeh's mouth. And he's saying, look what your king has done. He's taken away all your gods. You have no one left. You have no one to put your trust in. In fact, there's a, a map here I wanted to show you guys really quickly. This is the Assyrian Empire at this time. Literally, the known world is inhabited, controlled by the Assyrian Empire, except for that little oval right in the middle. Who's the only standouts? It says it right there, Judah. That, that one little oval of land is all that's left. For the empire of Assyria to conquer. And they're literally surrounding it. They've already conquered Egypt in the south. They've already conquered all the other known nations at that time. They, they control the known world. And they have their sights set on little old Judah. Little old Jerusalem. Verse 11 the narrative continues. Then Eliakim, Shibna, and Joah said to the Rebchaki, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. You see, the tactic of the day, the treachery of the nation of Assyria was to go in and to cause fear. Because with treachery, they would plunder. With treachery, they would come in and they would promise the world to the nations that they were coming against and then they would destroy them. They would treacherously go back on their treaties. They would treacherously go back on their promises. And these officials, Eliakim, Shibna, and Joah, they're saying, don't speak in Hebrew, which the common people could understand. But speak to us in the language of the Aramaic or the international language of the day. Verse 12, but the Rebchaki said, as my master sent me to your master, to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you. Trying to bring fear to the people that are defending the nation of Jerusalem. Verse 13, then the Rebchaki stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Again, repeating that title, repeating the lie. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord shall surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you eat from his own vineyard and every one from his own fig tree. And every one of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread 
and vineyards. What was that treacherous promise that the Reb Shaki was trying to get across to the people that were on the walls? We'll take you away to a nice place. We promise we'll give you bread and wine and nice things. As he's dripping lies. You see, we could easily replace this word Reb Shaki with devil, Satan, Lucifer, the father of lies. Because what does he do? The same exact tactics. What does he say to you? You're trying to defend your house, trying to defend your home, trying to defend your spirituality, trying to defend your life. And what does Satan do? He comes with the lies that are dripping with treachery. And what is his ultimate goal? Just like what we learned three chapters earlier in chapter 33. What is his goal? It's to plunder you. It's to bring you down. Just like the nation of Assyria is trying to do to Jerusalem. Rather than defending their land, what are they asking them to do? Open your gates. We'll take you away to a nice place. I know you guys are, are smarter than that. And same thing with the people of Jerusalem. They were smarter than that as well. In fact, in verse 18, it says, Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered Zitlan from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Serevaim? Indeed, here they delivered Samaria from my hand. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my, head, my hand. You see, when we look at God just like any other God, anything that we make into a God, what now happens to our perspective on our God? Oh, that one failed me. Oh, that one failed me. Oh, that one failed me. Rather than understanding that there is only one God who always saves. You see, the logic that the Reb Shecky is using worked on every single nation before Judah. Why? Because their gods were not gods. Their gods were just pieces of wood or gold or silver. That's all they were. But God, through Isaiah and Hezekiah, they have a different plan. It's a plan of deliverance because our God is a God who's living and powerful. And he's the same today as he was back then. Thank God. Last two verses. But they held their peace. All those guys that were on the wall. All, all those people that were representing the nation of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem. Why? For the king's commandment was, do not answer them. And that's the exact same thing it should be for today. 2,700 years later, the same is true for today. Never get into an argument with Satan. In fact, Jesus, in every single way, always said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, the angel, said, the Lord rebuke you. They never got into an argument with Satan, never tried to reason with him. Thank God the truth is still the same today. 
We have power and deliverance through our God. Verse 22. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shibna, the, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn. And they told him the words of Rabshakeh. And we end on a, on a cliffhanger tonight. Because I'm not going to tell you the answer. I want you to go find it out for yourself. Read the next three chapters. It's amazing. God is going to deliver the people of Israel in a miraculous way. And again, you may say, well, that happened 2,700 years ago. I'm not an Israelite. I, 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 I you know, don't understand all these names and these places and these prophecies, and it confuses me, and, and I don't even know, you know, I understand a lot of this. <clears throat> Do you understand the phrases that the Lord will deliver? That the Lord will bring about deliverance in our lives even now? That our God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever? That the God of the universe personally came to this earth for you and for me to deliver us from the impossible? That when the armies that are surrounding us, the problems, the troubles that may be surrounding your life right now, can God still deliver today? Amen. Yes, he can. And so, Father, tonight I thank you for your word. And that your word is always true. And we can come to these sections in the scriptures that... Uh, maybe hard to understand, or maybe we've never even read in our life or never even heard uh, taught before. Uh, These the sections in the scriptures that may feel archaic to us, they're old-fashioned. That, that's God back then. That, that's God for those people. But help us to realize today, show us today, that us, us here in this room, those that are listening online, those that may be listening in the future even, that you are still just as omnipotent back then as you are now. That you still deliver today just like you did 2,700 years ago. That, that you're still omniscient, that, that you're still omnipresent, that, that you're still omni, almighty, powerful, and personal with us, that you still deliver today. Remind us today of that truth. Maybe we've come in doubting. Maybe we've come in with all these problems and don't know how we're going to overcome them. Lord, help us to be like the people of Jerusalem. And instead of looking at our problems, instead of looking at the armies, instead of looking at the enemy wanting to destroy and devour us, help us to look to you, our great God, who is greater than any enemy, who is greater than any problem, who is able to save today. Lord, remind us of that now. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.